You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 26 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Over 800 Australian high net worth individuals had been clients of the Panama law firm Mossack Fonseca. One law firm, 800 Australian clients, 800 Australians holding assets in offshore tax havens. If you extrapolate that number of 800 from one law firm to an approximate total of law firms in offshore tax havens worldwide, the number gets difficult to conceive. How do all these Australians know how to set up shop in an offshore tax haven? Is it that easy? In search of an answer, I went to see Ben Sewell of Sewell and Cattle in Sydney. Ben is an insolvency lawyer and does a lot of work around offshore tax havens. Here's Ben. So how to set up a, um, a company or a structure in an offshore tax haven. So the internet has given rise to a, a huge number of different ser- service providers in this area. So if you are interested in... Um, the variety of um, different options you, you take. Just do a search on, on online. Um, what I'll do is I'll take you through it because it's completely different to Australia. In Australia, you uh, register a company with ASIC and you walk down to a bank and you've got to provide ID um, to a certain uh, satisfactory um, point and you can open a bank account. In the offshore world, um, there isn't the same transparency and the same requirements to... Um, meet identification requirements. So in Australia, as you know, there's only one different type of company that you can set up um, under the Corporations Act. In the offshore world, there's a whole different um, set of companies you can set up with very little um, cost and uh, very little um, difficulty in compliance. The main one is what's called an international business company or an international business corporation. And what it is is a company in a jurisdiction that um, you can set up without having to live in the jurisdiction. So that means I could set up a uh, com- company and I could be the sole director, but I wouldn't need to live in the jurisdiction that it's in. And interestingly, there's a prohibition on economic activity in the jurisdiction itself. So if I was to set up a uh, an international business company in the Cayman Islands, I would actually be prohibited from opening a business. So I couldn't even open a, uh, a corner store there because that, I, th- I think they want to protect their um, economies from the um, effects of um, uh, these international business com- companies. Now, the second thing, once you've made the decision about the type of uh, com- company, is you're going to need to, s- to select um, a registered agent. So if you go online and you, you um, do a search term, um, set up international business com- company, you're going to find Google page after Google page after Google page of different providers. But these providers may not be the registered agent. What the registered agent is, is the custodian within the jurisdiction who holds um, the register of directors and who has the authority from the jurisdiction to um, make the grant of incorporation. Now, it's completely different to Australia because it's only ASIC that is the registered agent in Australia, not your Tom, Dick and Harry law firm down down the road. Um, it also makes it um, difficult to obtain information offshore because if the only person that holds or the only firm that holds information regarding who the directors are 
is the registered agent, you need to issue a subpoena or you need to get consent from the registered agent themselves to get this information. What I'm seeing, saying is that most of the providers that you're going to find online are, are what's called intermediary. So they're, they're the fixers, the lawyers and accountants um, and other providers around the world who um, set up the structures, hire the agents, help to set up bank accounts, etc. But they're not necessarily the registered agents within the jurisdiction itself. So the, the fixers, basically, they do all the paperwork, whereas the registered agent just gives their stamp of approval at the end? It appears to be the case, yep. yep. Now, one of the um, the compliance processes the, the registered aid agent have is what's called Know Your Customer. So they're required to verify the identity of the um, the person who's incorporating. But that's new. That has now come in through the CIS, etc. That wasn't It wasn't like that before, was it, that they had to know their clients? Uh, it came in a little bit before CRS, but not too far before it. Uh, but you're, you're right in that that is something that has come about in the last 10 to 20 years to, um, uh, to I guess, protect against the worst form of fraud or protect against the worst form of, um, of funds being hidden by the worst criminals around the world. So what that means is you're required to disclose your passport, you're required to disclose your home address, you're required to disclose a utilities bill or, or enough information to prove your identity. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of other concepts in this, um, in this uh, setting up a corporate structure. One concept is the idea of um, creating layers. So what that may mean is that you have one company in one jurisdiction that owns another company in another, that is the director of another in another jurisdiction. Because in the offshore world, you can have companies as directors of others. And it seems to be always layered across several jurisdictions, doesn't it? You yes, it is. tend to never be that all three companies are on the Cayman Islands or the BVI, etc. It seems to always jump from one country to the other, just to make it more complicated to trace it. Yeah, look, it would, in terms of complexity, could potentially make it impossible to trace. So uh, if you're an Australian-based creditor or an Australian-based insolvency practitioner or someone trying to trace funds, uh, by the time you get through one layer, you pierce that layer by uh, by issuing a subpoena or by take, taking action, um, that loop may be closed off and the asset or, or the funds may be moved to another jurisdiction and then another. So it really creates an impossible uh, scenario for Australian-based um, pursuers of assets. The principles of layering are a bit like a, a lasagna. You've got all these layers in um, that go on top of each other to, um, to add to the structure of the, um, uh, the, the ownership. So, okay, let's start from the bottom. So say you've got, um, you've got the client, you've got the individual, and they're the investor, and they, they go and they find the intermediary. And um, what the intermediary does is it says, look, um, to really create a structure which is so opaque that no one's going to ever get to the bottom of it, what you need to do is you need to layer it by having one company in, say, the British Virgin Islands. It owns another company in the Cayman Islands, and that Cayman Islands company owns another company in Belize. And because you can have corporate directorships, what you do is you have the first company as the owner of the second and the second company as the owner of the third. And what you do is you put the assets in the name, say through bank accounts or through 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 title deeds or through a trust. 
you have um, the title to the assets you you want to move around in the name of the third company in Belize. And um, so if there's any issues down the track, what you can do is you can move the assets around and you can um, make it very difficult for anyone to pierce this structure and actually to trace it back to you. So that's a principle of um, layering. Um, what you need is you need to have uh, one person who is the ultimate owner. So the instrument that could be used to um, make them the ultimate owner is to have a trust, for example, that makes them the beneficiary. Or you could have bearer shares. And what bearer shares are is that the title to the share is actually held by the person who is the physical holder of the share at any one point in time. Another way you can uh, make the structure more opaque is to have nominee directors. And in the offshore world, you can have companies as directors of other com companies, whereas in Australia, that's illegal. Um, individuals can only be sh um, directors. So by having trusts, by having bearer shares, and by having nominee directors, it means that it's very hard to trace the ultimate ownership and control back to an individual person, say in Australia. Um, so uh, the layering example um, makes it very hard because if you're, say, um, someone who's, who's got a claim or who's got a wrong um, that, that they want to have, sorry, that they want to prosecute, if a corporate structure is layered, that person may need to go through one layer to another layer to another layer to actually get to an asset or to identify who the ultimate owner and controller is. And in the offshore world, you may need to issue subpoenas to the registered agents or the banks, um, and so it can become quite expensive and time-consuming. With, um, with bearer shares, who actually physically holds the bearer shares in the end? Is it the... Um, is it the third company or is it the nominee director or is it the ultimate owner sitting in Australia? Well, that's an interesting um, question to ask because a bearer share is really very conceptual. So um, the legal definition of, a, of, of um, the hold of a bearer share is the person who has physical possession of it at any one point in time. So that means the person who holds the piece of paper in their hand or has it within their control. Now, it's so conceptual that um, it could get down to the point of the person who asserts um, title through other entities. So that means that if, if I've got a, a, a corporate structure, I may say, look, I physically hold uh, the bearer share, but I actually hold it as director of company 123 Incorporated. So that means that at that point in time, that company is the holder of uh, the bearer share. Um, the point in time of asserting the rights under the bearer share, that means going to the registered agent and saying, I am the holder of the bearer share and I assert rights. You would think that is the only time in which um, there is a test as to who holds the share. Or if you want to set up a bank account, for example, or you want to change directors, um, and, and this is all done through the registration. Okay, the se second concept is the concept of a nom nominee uh, directorship. In Australia, um, as you know, um, there is no such thing as a nominee director. If you're a director, then you're stuck with a job. You know, you can't say, look, I was nominated or I act on behalf of someone else. That's it. In the offshore world, you can have someone as a nominee director and you're protected at law. Um, or, you, or you can have a, an, uh, a, a corporate director. Then the last concept is the concept of the bearer share. 
Now, the concept of the bearer share is the most exotic one. So in Australia, if you own a share, um, you're either on ASIC or um, if you're if you own, I think it's more than five percent of a public company, then it's sorry, an, an ASX list, listed entity, then that's uh, then that's disclosed as well. In the offshore world, there's this concept of the bearer share, which is a um, um, we would have had that a long time ago. You know, when you go back two hundred years or so in England, we would have had bearer shares as well, wouldn't we? I I don't know. Uh, we I think I can imagine we, the very we have first, bearer bonds. Yeah, I can imagine the very first shares would have been bearer shares. You know, just written on a piece of paper. Well, uh, title deeds deeds to land were in you know, were were um, transferred in the same way where they were on paper. But there's been a re- revolution in. Um, the ownership of assets now, where the uh, the documentary um, evidence of the asset does not give title, so it's the same with land. It's the same with shares. But what the bearer share is is the person who is the holder of the share at any point. That means has physical possession of it, has title to the share, is the owner. Um, it's a bit like cash. Uh, so in the offshore world, what that means is that if you're the holder of the bearer share, you own it, and if you're the pursuer then um, there's no way you can work out who the owner is at any point in time. The title to the share is exercised by the bearer of the, of the share um, attending the agent, so uh, so uh, the registered agent, and giving them directions. Um, if there's a dis- dis- disconnect, there's no way that you can work out who owns the share. What happens if, if Peter Smith, who has a company in the British Virgin Islands, loses his bearer share? Well, I think that technically he needs to go to court in the jurisdiction to get a rec- rectification order. On the other hand, in the Mossack Fonseca leaks, there's an example of um, a client of theirs who lost a bearer share and they uh, basically committed fraud and they, they prepared another one and they backdated the other share. So They just printed a new one. They printed a new, new one and, and then um, uh, they changed the date. It's quite an elaborate uh, document. So it's got a gold stamp on it and um, it looks very official. Uh, so uh, I think that in practice the registered agent sends it on to the ultimate owner and the ultimate uh, beneficiary wherever they are and they keep it in their safe or they keep it with their um, uh, professional advisor. Okay. So it usually doesn't sit with the nominee director and it usually doesn't sit with the registered agent but with the ultimate investor. I would think so because because that's that's at the end of the day their their form of control. Yeah. Um, that's that's their ultimate fallback. Where if if there is any problems, they can um, present it to the registered office. Now, if there is an inheritance issue, that can become quite exotic because if the holder passes away and um, the doc- document is in a safe, then it, it there, there could be a race. There could be a race to get to the safe to get the bearer share to get to the registered agent's office to change the directorship to get the assets. would make a good Hollywood movie. It would. Is there a problem if the um, investor dies? Is it difficult for the um, new person holding the bearer share to then actually claim ownership when the name on the share is different? The best example of that is um, is to read about the Michael Hutchins' inheritance dispute where there is a um, there's an offshore incorporated entity and uh, there's a there's a lawyer who's an advisor, and there's allegations that have been made by the brother 
that he's been excluded uh, through the the assertion by an external advisor, by a lawyer, of being the ultimate beneficiary of the estate of Michael Hutchins. So, look, yes, you'd think the more exotic you make it and the, and the further you put it outside the Australian jurisdiction that, um, uh, that, that the risk opens up. Okay, so these are the three ingredients to create an offshore tax haven, bearer share, nominee director, and... Well, the type of corporate structure itself. So the main one is what's called an international business company. Ah, yes, That's okay. a company that, that can trade anywhere in the world with no restrictions, but the only restriction is it can't trade within the offshore jurisdiction itself. So the three ingredients of an offshore tax haven company are, A, it's an international business company, B, it has nominee directors, and C, it has bearer shares. That's right. Now, what's interesting is the process in which the company is incorporated. So the registered agent gives it the stamp of approval. The costings are pretty um, straightforward around the world. So you're looking at about $1,000 US plus disbursements. So very cheap, incredibly cheap. And then the jurisdiction itself. So so the offshore jurisdiction um, charges about $500 US a year as fees to maintain the company. So it's cheap and it's easily accessible. What is an offshore tax haven? Okay, so there's no single accepted definition for what an offshore tax haven is, but there's three different elements that need to be um, present, okay? So the first element is there needs to be a grant of foreign jurisdictions. That means that country needs to um, give a person the right to incorporate there and to hold assets there without any requirement to uh, be personally present within the jurisdiction itself. Within Australia, w- sorry, whereas Australia, completely different. If you are a director of a company, every, every company needs to have at least one director who resides in Australia. Um, so second element is um, protections to maintain the secrecy of the information. So that's the second element. So um, there's no publicly available register of shareholders or directors and um, the right to the sec- to secrecy of the of the ultimate ownership. So that means that um, if there's a trust related to it, that the ultimate ben- beneficiary is not disclosed to anyone. Um, that's number two. And number three is tax is for the the company and the assets to be tax exempt. So that means in all of these cu- countries, there's no income tax, and there's no other form of direct taxation like capital gains tax. Um, or sales tax, and um, there's even no requirements to file tax returns because it, it makes sense that if, if there's no tax, then you don't need to file a uh, tax return. So they're the three elements. Number one, you have an open check for the use of the com- company itself granted by the jurisdiction. Uh, number two, you have protections regarding the ultimate owners and the ben- beneficiaries um, of the companies and the assets related to them. And number three, three that it's tax-free. When you do an online search, you will mainly get intermediaries. You won't get registered agents. Yep. But I can imagine it's because a tax haven usually probably only has a few handful of registered agents. Two, maybe two, 200 or so. Yeah, maybe 200 or so, whereas intermediaries would be any any Peter Smith or any Fernando Gonzalez who, That's right. who wants to make a buck, could go online and offer his services as an intermediary. Yep. Hence, the online research will basically just come up with intermediaries. Should one avoid the intermediaries and just go directly to the registered agent, or one always has to go through an intermediary? One just has to look for one that is quite. Yeah, look. If it, one is declined this way, you know, 
we have to be careful, of course, because we're talking about dubious, um, dubious well, undertakings. It's, look, it's not necessarily uh, du dubious. It depends upon the business activity that you want to undertake. And there's a whole um, group of people out there called nomad die capitalists now. And a nomad die capitalist is someone who has made a decision um, to, for example, hand in their um, American passport and become an international citizen and, and um, take, uh, take a citizenship in one or two countries and to live um, in the offshore world and not pay any tax. So... Um, what are they called? Nomad, nomad capitalists. Nomad N-O-M-A-D, capitalists. So there's a whole group of pe people out there. It's a bit like um, uh, it's a bit like the nomads in Australia who sell up their house and, and drive around a caravan and, and live off the land. These are people that don't just buy a caravan. They actually leave the jurisdiction that they live in, that they are domiciled in, and hand, hand in their passport and then live around the world tax-free. So, um, What passport do they travel on? Well, this is the ship shifting sands of what they they should do. So I've I've read that um, some uh, nomad cap capitalists uh, get a New Zealand passport and a um, a Montenegrin passport and a um, why New Zealand? New Zealand has um, the recognition internationally to be able to travel uh, without necessarily the um, the aggressive tax uh, evasion process. Okay, so we can talk about objective. I, th I think that, that will be the first step to think about well, what is the objective. Are you, for example, um, starting an online um, gambling uh, web website? You know, um, where is that going to be based? Are you going to break any laws around the world? Are you going to be a nomad die capitalist? Are you working in an oil rig overseas and you want to be a subcontractor? What is your objective? Um, and there's so much material online. There's so much... Um, Material about tax are domicile that um, look. I think think you'd be swamped. I, I think you'd see so many tax havens around the world. Um, there's one tax haven which um, is one of the United Arab Emirates uh, called RAK, where there's no individual tax, there's no corporate tax. Um, so if you're able to get an investor visa and live there, you're not going to pay uh, any tax. Um, Australia has a system of worldwide tax, which means that if you are domiciled for the purpose of tax in Australia, then you'll pay income tax on any income you uh, receive around the world subject to double taxation agreements. So you're basically saying not everybody setting up shop in an offshore tax haven is evading tax or is breaking any laws? Well, yeah, they may just be avoiding tax. Yes. Okay. So coming back to the question, should one always um, go for a registered agent or should one, um, is it fine to go through an intermediary as, soon, as long as it's a, a respected Oh, uh, Look, I think you'd be keeping your costs down by going directly to a red registered agent and not um, having the layering of um, or professional Another advisors. Middleman. There's also um, a couple of the, the main intermediaries that I've seen online are also based in exotic places. Like there's one based in Latvia, And there's another one based in uh, in Africa. So um, there could be a concern regarding quality, um, where if you're engaging an intermediary that, that has no fiduciary or professional obligations to you as a client as to the quality of what they actually provide, because you know they don't have any um, skin in the game. Mm. 
Whereas if you're engaging a, um, a law firm or an accountant, um, they've got professional and fiduciary obligations that are on the line. Have you ever met somebody who works as an intermediary or as a registered agent? Well, last year I went to um, two conferences, one in the Cayman Islands, one in the BVI, and um, I had cocktails on the beach with a whole bunch of intermediaries and, you know, they're very um, charismatic, exotic, uh, you know, uh, people that are all uh, intelligent. Yeah, I, I, I haven't met any uh, sinister intermediaries, though. Mm. My picture was, you know, a dark alleyway somewhere... In, well, a, in a third world country, you know, I, I, I some have, of them are probably quite professional. So I, I did have a case where there was a registered agent in in, in Hong Kong, and um, uh, I was told about the registered agent, and uh, it, it was a um, a ten square uh, meter office with uh, with 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 an old uh, gentleman that smoked uh, cigars all 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 day and uh, didn't maintain his uh, paperwork. So I, I do have an image in my mind about some some of them, and. Um, uh, I haven't met many of them, I'm, I'm afraid. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine there's a whole spectrum. There's probably the alley, the dark alley, and there's probably also the big corporate office and yes. anything in between. I do I do have a matter on foot related to a Chinese um, uh, embezzlement where um, all of the money was deposited into a particular bank in Australia, and the allegation of the official receiver and the trust, trustee in bankruptcy is that this related to a, a particular uh, service provider that was around the corner from the bank. So um, there is a, um, you know, the the objective behind, sorry, the regulatory objective behind a red registered agent is someone that can be traced and tracked down to get information from. So to set up an offshore tax haven company, the biggest challenge sounds to be to find a good intermediary or registered agent that you can trust that is reputable that won't run away with your assets once you you have found that then the rest you're probably guided through the rest of the process you yeah. know then, then you're just told you need to sign this you need to sign this go and get a bank account at this bank etc well if if it's properly structured and you have the right documents from the registered agent you can do the rest yourself so you can set up the bank account yourself you you can acquire assets yourself the extent of their work would be to hold a power of attorney to hold dust certificates um, and to assist you to evidence the structures that have been created and the registered agent if they're a law firm or an accounting firm will charge you hourly or charge you set fees to do things and um, they'll be like a law firm or accounting firm here in Australia. How well structured is the legal system in, in, the, um, in the tax havens? Are they, do they have a legal system like we do with, with proper court? There's a lot of jo offshore jurisdictions uh, that have different Setups, but what I can generalize by saying is that the setup of the system favors the investor. So um, I've got a matter now which is in the Cayman Islands, and so one thing that can be observed about that is if you want to wind up a, a corporate structure, it's very hard. So you need to go to the Supreme Court over there, the Grand Court, and you need to apply to court to wind up. Whereas in Australia, you can just have a director's res, uh, resolution, um, and so the wind-up process is much more streamlined here. Um, so I think the generalisation would be that, it, that the structures and the legal systems are not designed to help someone who traces assets. Um, another example of that is that in the offshore world, there is no law of shadow directorship. So in Australia, if you're someone who pulls the strings behind the directors and you are the person who's the ultimate 
um, controller. Um, there's a, um, a principle of law whereby you can be sued as a director as well, as if you're a director. So, but in the offshore world, there isn't. So that uh, favours someone who is the controller of the asset, someone who's the, um, the ultimate um, uh, uh, recipient of them. Where are the assets actually? The assets are sitting anywhere. in a bank account. Anywhere. And One of the examples of the assets, so if we start to talk, talk about the assets, um, there's a great article in um, A Vanity Fair from 2013 that talks about the most expensive apartment block in the world. So the most expensive apartment block in the world is one Hyde Park um, in the UK, which is valued about $1.7 billion. The most expensive apartment is over $215 million. Now, um, most of those apartments are owned by international biz business com companies in the offshore world. So what that means is that that asset class um, in the UK, un unlike Australia, an international biz business company can own land. Uh, so what that means is that if you have an international biz business company, you can own assets in jurisdictions that allow it. And it can be anything. It can be bank accounts. It can be shares. It can be land. It can be options to own shares. So um, in Australia, international business companies are not allowed to buy land or to buy shares? Uh, they're allowed to buy shares, but, but in terms of land ownership in Australia, uh, no. Okay. It's Australian-based com companies, um, international investors... But the land look, the land ownership rules was complex. There's uh, foreign ownership rules as well. So, um, okay. but in but in the UK, an international business company can buy land. Yes, and can. hence number one Hyde Park in London is majority is owned. So something like um, out 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 of the apartments, eighty percent of the apartments are owned by international business business companies, which means that. Um, the identity of the ultimate owners and controls is is completely um, uh, out of the public knowledge. Okay. And how um, how much risk do investors go into when they place these assets into the um, into these international business companies? Is it is the legal structure around these inter international business companies quite safe? So the um, nominee director couldn't run couldn't walk off with these assets or is there actually quite a bit of risk involved in placing assets into international business companies? It's interesting you say that because on the one hand um, you'd, you'd have to say there's there's a, a much higher rate of fraud because um, uh, because of the flexibility of control and all of the rules regarding audits that don't exist and uh, the fiduciary obligations of the directors are lower. So look, you'd say yes, there is a fraud risk. On the other hand, most hedge funds in the world are based in the offshore world, so um, and a lot of investment funds are based off offshore. So um, the practical reality is, is that there is a huge uh, volume of assets around the world that are based in these offshore juris, uh, juris, uh, jurisdictions. So it's 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 conflicting. When you say a lot of hedge funds and investment funds are based in offshore, I'm talking about the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands or, or Bermuda or. Well, I don't think I'd actually class Hong Kong as, as being an offshore tax haven, tax haven because... Yeah. They are low tax, but they are not no there's tax, low tax. etc. And, and also there's a publicly available red register of directors and um, uh, the ultimate owners of shares are, is, is publicly um, available. Okay, good. So 
we delete that. Hong Kong is not a tax haven. Don't worry about it. Keep it in. Okay, so the, the rules that govern international business companies, etc., they are the laws of the foreign jurisdiction. So the Cayman Island, they have a parliament, I assume, and they issue these laws that then govern how international business companies work. They govern how the nominee directorship works, etc. Yes. So there is a proper legal system behind all this. Okay, so in terms of the Cayman Islands specifically, it's a British overseas territory. So, like Australia, it's under the Crown. Um, and the other? There is a gov governor, yeah, and, and the other British overseas territories are the same. So, but Bermuda, Belize, uh, the British Virgin Islands, um, uh, Gibraltar, um, Jersey. They're all British? Overseas territories. Overseas so, oh, there's okay. a British appointed... Belize as well? Belize as well. Oh, okay. Uh, so there's a there's a, a British connection. Um, what's interesting as well is that if there's a um, if there's a, a legal dispute, it could go up to uh, a court in uh, Britain. So you've got um, so well. One of the things that's attractive to the international community is the security of the law um, and the British influence. Yeah, I can imagine that would give a lot of peace of mind having the British legal system. <laughs> behind all this. Yes. Yes, it would. Yes, yes, it would. Uh, and because I always, I always thought tax havens is a high-risk proposition because you have you have no idea how laws are made in these countries, etc. But when you look at British overseas territories and you have the whole British system behind it, I think that worry is, is not justified. Yeah, look, um, there are examples of countries that have been invaded and there's been problems so the American invasion of Panama in 89 is one example where if you use that as a tax haven and you were involved in illegal activities it may have created a problem for, for you. I see, did, did the Americans access business registers, registers in uh, Panama when they in 1989? Well look one, one of the re reasons behind the invasion was to arrest Manuel Noriega because he was involved in the cocaine cowboys in Miami and involved in the drug cartels. And that was the through point of which planes flew into a Panama. Uh, Noriega would get a cut of the money and then send drugs into, uh, into other states. So um, that is the ultimate example of um, a tax haven which, um, uh, which had no rules, which uh, was invaded and... Um, you know, the people that were involved in the um, illegal drug activities with the cocaine cowboys were uh, arrested. I had never heard of an international business company before of that term, but it seems to be a standard term that all offshore tax havens use, this term of it international business corporation or international business company. From what I've read, it was after the American invasion of Panama in 89, which when it was adopted. So I think the the focus shifted completely to the British overseas territories as the countries that um, uh, were the preferred tax havens. Okay, and because of that structure and because of uh, the legal um, protections of the UK. Oh, okay. So the international business company, this term, is a term that comes from the British overseas territories. Yeah. Of the British-backed I'm, I'm trying to dig deep into my mind thinking about when, uh, about the, about, about, about an article that I read about its creation, but uh, I think there was two corporate lawyers from uh, the US who lived in, um, I, think, I think it was Bermuda, and they came up with the idea.
and it was adopted after that. So yeah, there is a couple of cor- corporate lawyers who developed it as as an idea, and then it took off at some time at the end of the eighties. Okay, now it's a very standard term. Every, standard term. Every offshore tax haven offers an international business company or corporation. Effectively, yeah. Entity. Um, and is this new rule, know your clients, KYC, is that, a, is that a rule that most tax havens have now? It's a, it's a generic term that um, the tax havens generally adopted as a methodology for complying with international banking requirements. And it is a, um, it's a generic term for uh, providing identification. Now, look, my theory is, is it, it's, a, it's a bit of a Swiss cheese because it's an idea that the, um, that the registered agent in the jurisdiction we will put together proper information that allows the ultimate controller to be identified, whereas, as, as you would know, they'd have a strong incentive not to do it. Um, and so just because someone has been, who has, has been identified as the director and the shareholder doesn't necessarily mean that there may not be another layer behind that to... Um, to mean that they aren't. Mm. So that's why I say Swiss cheese, because it is a generic concept, but um, all of the examples in the Panama Papers dealt with um, uh, structures and schemes to um, make opaque or to you know, hide the ultimate owner and the ultimate yeah. control. Yeah, because the layering basically works against the, the know-your-client concept. Because you might get all the details of your client, but if your client is another international business company, a different jurisdiction, and then it goes again and again, it becomes a... Yeah, and look, if, if there's, for example, if there's a trust, um, you can set up the structure and you can identify the ultimate uh, beneficiary and then just change it. Just change it. So, um, you know, the... I, I just uh, the research that I've conducted is that the more and more that um, rule the the more rules that are set set up to limit the offshore tax havens, the more that they come up with with approaches and tech techniques to get around it. What does your work look like around tax havens? You mentioned creditors before and trying to locate assets. I'm a lawyer based in Australia. In terms of the scope of work that I got, one I represent. Australians who are trying to trace assets overseas. So one example of that is an Australian insolvency practitioner who gets appointed over a company and is trying to trace assets around around the world. Now they've got a tough job. Let's just say it so that much. Another example of work that I've done is acting for uh, foreign investors in companies in Australia. And so um, there may be a whole bunch of different com- companies around the world that there that funds have passed through. Um, another. Um, aspect is, is acting for people in Australia that are accused of fraud by overseas investors or overseas insolvency pra- practitioners or, or overseas um, entities. And so they may get sued in Australia or they may require a legal representative in, in Australia. Um, so that's the so there's always a jurisdictional link with Australia in some way. I'm not someone who's uh, sitting on a beach in an offshore tax haven as a registered agent. Not the work, work that I do. Um, I also don't provide tax advice. But If there's a jurisdictional link to Australia with an investor, with someone who's a defendant, or with an asset, then then that's work that I can get involved in. And so you mentioned that the first case was um, trying to trace assets in 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 offshore tax havens. Is that the majority of 
your work. I can imagine that's where the vibe of work well, comes from. And I can imagine, sorry, that's the straight, second question straight away. I can imagine that actually knowing that there is an asset in an offshore tax haven, that knowledge, that's probably the hardest bit to start with. Look, it's a, it's a big area. Um, so, for example, there's just a, a huge scope of potential clients. So one is, for example, uh, being involved in a divorce. Um, another is a biz, biz, business partner who's, who's been wronged. Another is an investor who has um, had their funds um, improperly dealt with. Uh, the, the interesting thing about the offshore world is although the asset, the title of the assets may be held in the offshore world, they might find their way to some, somewhere else. So, for example, one uh, case I've been involved in is giving advice to Korean investors who invested in an Australian company that then sent the money on to uh, the offshore world. So you've got you've got uh, Korean investors who don't speak English, you've got a Korean lawyer, you've got me as the Australian lawyer who's, who's trying to talk to ASIC about it and Koreans, and then you've got the offshore world and you've got a registered agent who has no incentive at all to co- cooperate and is doing everything they can to put obstacles in the way of information being uh, disclosed. And all the while there's this great suspicion that um, there's no way that we that the clients are going to get the funds back back in the end because, you know, the ship could, could have already sailed. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I'm currently acting in uh, the largest uh, shadow directorship case in Australia, which relates to a Cayman Islands um, investment fund where there's an allegation of funds being improperly dealt, dealt with. And, and my client's the director who's been sued in Australia. Uh, so look, it's a very interesting, exciting area, and one of the one of the changes I think that I that is uh, the the main changes in this area is that when when I was a young lawyer and um, there was an offshore um, aspect to any liquidation or uh, or receivership, uh, the the the, uh, the insolvency practitioner would always give up on it and say, look, it's too hard. There's no way we can go go over there. It's too expensive. The assets are already gone. Forget about it. Now there's much more of an appetite to actually go to to the offshore world to issue subpoenas to um, to take action to get funds back. So that's 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 a big change. That's what's ex- um, exciting for me. How um, how high do you think the success rate is? Not just for you, but in general, how high is the success rate to actually um, get assets back that are hidden in the offshore world? Maybe one needs to distinguish between, you know, whether it's a creditor chasing assets or whether it's a spouse. I think you would have to. Assets. I don't think there's any empirical evidence out there and data set that you could analyze to give a figure. But I would say that the chances of recovery are not high. So would would you say it's below ten percent or below one percent? I I don't know. Mm. I, I I really don't know. But I I wouldn't think it's very high. Mm. Um, it may be worth going after, depending on the the quantum or the amount of the claim. But I would say that it's um, that the chances aren't high. Mm. Part of the job of a lawyer is to assess the probability of success and to make sure the client isn't throwing good money after bad. Assets hidden offshore is it usually just pure cash, or is it also foreign? Foreign shares, or overseas property. It's probably not ASX listed shares. Am uh, I right? Well, look the the matter that I was involved in advising the Korean investors was 
an Australian company that that put itself forward as acquiring Australian-based securities for Korean investors. There was some evidence that there had been some securities bought. Um, another one that I, I was involved in was an Australian um, uh, agricultural producer who um, offered securities and then actually bought a, um, a ski resort, uh, a ski lodge um, with, with the funds and then moved them offshore again. So, look, there could be a, um, a variety of assets. Um, but is it usually cash or too difficult to say? Well, Can you know, you've you got to think that at some point in time in the process there would be cash mm. because cash is converted into other types of assets and then converted back into cash. So there's there's got to be cash. I think that if you were looking to move assets and you kept it in one asset class and didn't change it, then it, it could potentially be susceptible for a claim or susceptible for recovery or a court court injunction. Okay, so it's actually, if you wanted to keep assets safe offshore, it's actually safer to put it into different asset classes than to just have it all sitting in one bank account. You know what, that, that well, I, that's a tough one to answer because it, it, de it depends on objectives and risk. But the point that I make is I think at some point in time it's got to be cash. You convert assets from cash, you make them... Mm. Um, Uh, into a li liquid asset, you convert them. So at some time, I think there's cash in the pro pro process, and that's that's the the hard, hardest to trace as well. Why a company or a trust offshore? Why not just a bank account offshore? Let's assume, of course, you have to have a, a company or a trust if you want to hold assets, non-cash assets. Mm -hmm. But if you just want to have cash, do you need a company on trust offshore or could you just hold directly a bank account well it's about the opacity so having an opaque uh, relationship so uh, in you know throughout his history there's this uh, division between ownership and control and you know ultimately it's about control so if you want to have control of an asset then um, and and you want to make sure that um, It can't be linked to you, then you don't want to have outright title to that asset. Um, so hence in the, the exam, need, hence the need of a company or a trust, and, and and not just one company or trust, but layered of two or three or four. That is exactly right. That is exactly right. And then in the jur jurisdiction, if if you're not the um, the ulti the ultimate owner, so um, uh, if you're not identified as being the owner of the shares, then that makes it easier to um, uh, to deal with any tax issues or any uh, credit claims. Have you ever seen an investor losing their assets in an offshore tax haven with the nominee director running away? I, I have, I have. Um, I've acted for those uh, defendants. Uh, it's, um, it's delicate. It's, it's, it's a bit like being involved in a uh, criminal trial. The number one rule of our criminal law is that if you're acting for a defendant, the person should exercise their right to maintain our silence um, in the uh, in the uh, United States. What they call uh, taking the fifth uh, uh, fifth amendment. Um, amendment. So, you know that if if you're an accountant, for example, and you've got a client in that uh, in that type of position, then that's um, likely to be the most prudent approach to take. Uh, A matter I, I'm involved in currently is a um, is a matter where there's a, a 
bankruptcy um, trustee who's um, who's who's uh, uh, currently used the powers of the official receiver to examine the client. Now, in that case, it's interesting because um, because it's a civil um, uh, discovery process. The um, the person doesn't have the right to take the Fifth Amendment, doesn't have the right to maintain their uh, silence. So they've got to answer it, the questions that are put to them, but they've got to put uh, privilege first. So, so, where, so which country is that in? This is in Australia. Oh, this, is in, uh, this is in Sid- Sydney. So look... And why don't they have a right to silence? Uh, well, in... in um, so in in terms of our criminal proceedings, you've got a right to our silence completely. But if if it's a if it's a if it's a civil proceeding, you don't have the right to our silence. So, um, in bankruptcy in, in Australia, there's there's uh, some powers that the trustee has and the official receiver has to demand information from stakeholders. Potentially, they're involved in this 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 form of tax evasion to um, uh, to give information to give recorded um, interviews. Um, and look, that that's. That's the best example of one where I've had clients that have been forced to actually disclose this information. It's, it's, it's currently ongoing. If you read articles by law firms and, and agents in the offshore world, they say that the protection of your, of your identity is a reason in itself. And the basis of that that idea is if their clients are coming from the third world where they can be kidnapped or where they um, you know are personally at risk then their argument is is that it's a legitimate um, a legitimate protection now um, uh, Sweden as an example um, discloses um, uh, the taxes you pay so they have this is it called the the, uh, the calendar the taxation calendar so in Sweden uh, the government uh, publishes what individuals pay as tax. Now, in, in Australia, we've made a policy decision that um, an individual's tax information is secret information, so no one can find out how, how much tax you paid. So I guess that's a decision we've made. In the offshore world, the policy decisions they've, they've made, they just justify in their own you know way. So, okay, so it comes down to, okay... Um, the level of secrecy that a society affords. That's one. Number two is tax. Okay, In, in Australia, we have a system of worldwide tax. Um, uh, Singapore doesn't. Hong Kong has half worldwide tax, half non-worldwide tax. So that's a policy decision we've made to tax income that an, in, an individual or a company earns around the world, regardless of whether it's in Australia. Okay, uh, That's a policy decision we make. And then we also make our policies and policy decisions about the types of activities that people can conduct. Um, so, look, uh, you know, I, I guess the more I read about this, the more I think, well, it's 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 related to the culture of a of a society. Um, we, in terms of our taxation policy, um, don't require individuals to disclose any information regarding the taxes they pay. Some countries have other policies. Um, a progressive taxation approach um, and the worldwide tax approach we, we have is a, a policy a decision. Do tax havens play a big role in money laundering? If you're the recipient of cash and you want to um, move it through a legitimate enterprise, um, I think it would be easier to do it in the offshore world than in Australia. So I'd say yes, they do play a part. 
how they play that part. Um, uh, the Mossack Fonseca leaks go through a lot of our scenarios of um, of, of uh, world uh, leaders that have uh, hidden money around around the world. So I'd say that's an example of money laundering, where they take take the money as bribes, or it's it's implied that they take uh, the money as bribes, and then they move it offshore. So the answer to your question is yes, um, but the Mossack Fonseca leaks, which are the best example of this. Have the the articles have only dealt with the most exotic. Um, so the answer is yes. You don't necessarily need a professional advisor. Um, if you were investigating tax evasion in a, in Australia, you might necessarily have a top tier law firm or a top tier accounting firm providing advice on it. People can come up with these schemes on their own. Um, in terms of laundering our money around around the world, uh, look, you know, people can come up with this on their own as well uh, by not telling their tax agent in, uh, information regarding income they've earned, uh, by putting money in a bank account overseas, not uh, disclosing it, etc. So, look, my hypothesis and my my suggestion would be is that you, you don't necessarily need a tax advisor or a tax lawyer or a tax accountant to to do this, and most people will come up with this on their own. Uh, with um, the use of these structures, you'd have to say that these countries promote it. So they promote what they're doing. And it's part of a, um, a drive for countries that are not as economically developed to get tax, re- to, to get tax receipts, to get um, uh, foreign investment, um, uh, to invest our capital. So, look, you'd have to say yes. These countries know what they're doing and they've set up structures so that um, it's easy to take advantage of them. But on the other hand, you don't necessarily need, as an individual tax evader or someone's looking to send funds around the world, you don't necessarily need a top-tier law, law firm to do it. There's a democratisation of this space. You mentioned the income that tax havens make from these international business companies. What income do they actually get out of it? They don't get any tax income out of it. So the income they get out of it is fees, isn't it? Okay, so there's corporate fees. So with all the companies that they set up, they get a fee each year, so say $500 US per year. Um, if you are a service provider that's onshore, so say you're the registered agent, you'll pay income tax. If you don't pay income tax, there is other indirect taxes. So, for example, if you're a... Um, if you're a lawyer that has a law firm in the Cayman Islands, there's a pay- payroll tax of something like 50 grand a year for each employee you have. Um, so there is a, uh, I, I think you would say that that the um, there's an in indirect system of receipts, mm. um, which the investor of course then pays through their fees when they pay the registered agent or when they pay the yeah. So I guess a trickle down theory of how. Um, of how the economy benefits, um, and it, look, if if you are going to set up a hedge fund in the offshore world, then you know you'll you'll have to pay the lawyers, as, as you said, a a, a, um, a fee to do it. Uh, there'll be annual fees. There may also be bank fees if if you have a bank account and you have a complex account. There'll be bank fees that'll be paid in the juris- jurisdiction. Um, every time a doc document is signed, someone will need to sign it over there. That that will be fees as well. You used the British Virgin Islands as an example before. 
And you mentioned there that there's no law of ultra-virus, so there's no limit on usage of the company. What means ultra-virus? Ultra-virus. So ultra-virus is a, is a concept which is related to the usage of a corp corporation. So in, in, um, in Australia, there's, there's a, um, a bunch of laws about how you can use a corporate stru structure. So, for example, um, if I want to use my company as an incorporated law firm, I need to comply with, with other laws. Um, in the offshore world, there's no restriction. So that means that if I incorporate in the BVI, that the government of the B BVI and the corp corporate law says you can do whatever you want with that, Ben. So that means I could use that as an incorporated law firm in, a, in, a, in, a, in Australia and there's no, uh, there's no other restriction. So that's one example of it. So I could use it as a bank in Australia, for example, if the Australian government was to let me do it. So what that means is that, um, you know, as a, if, if you're a creative intermediary, potentially if there's a legal loophole somewhere, somewhere in the world, you could use the company to do it. So there's this guy who writes books, um, uh, and his name's uh, Magnuson, and he writes books about how you can use an international business com company to set up a bank in New Zealand. And he's written a book book on it. And I think the loophole's closed since, but that's it. that's an example. Where if the government of the offshore jurisdiction says you can use it for whatever you want, you'll just then look around the world and come up with a way to use it. I still find it mind-boggling that the British Virgin Islands and all the other British overseas territories could run these offshore tax havens for so many years without Britain putting putting a stop to it that only now comes to an end. It's it's a wonderful contradiction in that on the one hand you have uh, the British government uh, leading the charge with America against um, tax evasion around the world and money laundering, and yet on the other hand you have these islands which are which are under the crown, which are tax free and are tax havens. Um, perhaps it's about in international uh, competition. Perhaps they cater for all uh, comers. You know, perhaps there's some uh, some islands in other uh, British Empire that um, uh, that attract the uh, the tax evaders and the money launderers, and there's other islands that you know comply with the EU and with uh, and with um, America's you know, rules. So that's the only way I can uh, I can uh, describe it. But there's certainly plenty of articles out there about criticism, and one of the best examples of this is. Um, Is, um, is David Cameron, the former Prime Minister. His father was, uh, was listed in the Mossack Fonseca pa pa papers as having an offshore structure and um, advice given to him about tax, um, tax avoidance, etc. And at the same time as this was being disclosed internationally, there was also statements that he put out criticising the offshore world and promising to go after tax evasion around the world. So this is the contradiction. And look, um, it could just be about uh, economics. It could be about uh, governments around the world taking rational decisions to maximise the tax receipts and to maximise the wealth of their own country. And this is the best example. Welcome back. Something Ben didn't mention, but I found in one of his articles, is that China views Australia as an offshore tax haven since we don't share information the way China would like us to and because we rejected an extradition treaty with China. So here we are 
in an offshore tax haven after all. In the next episode, episode 27, Ron Lash, the managing director of BGL, will talk about BGL, how it started, where it is now and where it is heading. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.